Culture Affidavit Episode 9, Your Cure for PCSD. Episode 9 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at just about everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and today I'm going to take it pretty seriously for once. You see, next month there will be legions of young people graduating from colleges and universities across the country, and many of them will be forced to deal with a serious problem that affects many of our nation's youth and can be quite debilitating. It is post-collegiate stress disorder, or PCSD. Alright, I honestly don't think there is a term that exists called PCSD, and I'm pretty sure I made it up. But, as someone who is in his mid-30s already, which is kind of scary when you think about it, don't you think that there should be some sort of formal term for your early 20s? I mean, it's quite possibly one of the well most screwed up times in your life. A time that I remember alternately being awesome and completely sucking. But a period of time that made enough of an impact on me that I actually wrote a novel about it. You can't read it because I'm editing draft number I don't know, 50. But I swear I wrote one. (laughs) Really though, I think that aside from 12 maybe 17 or 18. 22 is just one of those ages not ending in zero that has more than enough written about it. Uh, Just ask Douglas Copeland. (laughs) But really, it seems that after you leave college, you really don't have many years in your life where there are certain set expectations. It's like you go to school, you graduate at 18, you go to college, you start drinking legally, at 21, you graduate at 22, and then marriage? Kids? There really isn't much of an official time for any of those to happen, if they happen at all. And yeah, I guess you could also argue that attending college, much less, much less graduating or graduating on time, is also something that not everyone does. It's a valid argument. I, I took the expected route. 
in life, though. Um, I went to college. I graduated with my BA uh, in 1999. I stayed all of one summer at my parents' house in Long Island, although I spent the better part of a month going back and forth between Long Island and Washington, D.C., because my girlfriend was still down there, and I was looking for an apartment, which I found, and then eventually I moved to Arlington, uh, which was... At least my apartment was interesting. This my very first apartment, um, living on my own with no uh, roommates, no parents anywhere, uh, was on Columbia Pike in Arlington, about a mile or so from the Pentagon. And where I was living was on a basement level of one of the buildings, uh, which meant you could break into the apartment pretty easily, but I don't think anyone would really want to because I didn't really have much to steal at the time unless you wanted a futon and a really uncomfortable love seat and a, you know, relatively new mattress. I don't know. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, oh, I had a VCR. Um, but, but really, um, there, there, there wasn't much to the apartment. It wasn't terrible. I mean, it was a serviceable apartment from what I remember. Um, I wasn't home very much. Within a month or so, my girlfriend moved into her own place uh, over at Pentagon City. Uh, and I spent most of my time there to the point where I think there were entire weeks where I actually didn't spend more than an hour or so a day in my own place. Uh, except for that time I got the stomach flu. That's just a nightmare. I mean, if you ever have the stomach flu, I mean, it's never a joyride, but... To this day, I can't watch Never Been Kissed without thinking about how I paused the movie several times to go and blow chow in my bathroom. In fact, I think that's the only memory I have, aside from the fact that I remember the lobby of this apartment complex having this weird fountain, and something was screwed up on my phone so I couldn't buzz people into the apartment the way I wanted to. I said this weird neighbor who was like... I'm pretty sure he actually had post-traumatic stress disorder... Um, and you could never find a fucking parking space on a Sunday night at that place. That's about it, though. I moved in with um, my girlfriend after the lease was up, um, and we got married. <laughs> so, oh wait, I have one memory of the place, and it's actually worth sharing. Um, so living, I'm living in this apartment, and uh, like I said, it's a ground floor apartment. Uh, one night, Amanda, who's my wife, uh, and I are are there for whatever reason, uh, watching television. I don't remember why we're actually there, because um, usually we did hang out at her place, but I. I I, I, something it has something to do with the fact that her uh, building they never took the antenna off her the roof of her building so everybody's cable reception was all screwy uh, anyway we're at her we're at watching TV and um, all of a sudden we hear someone from outside of my apartment window scream get down get the fuck down um, and it's a bust that was going down on the lawn outside my apartment window so we dive on the floor behind the futon that was in my living room, which I'm sure if bullets went flying through the window would have no way and would have in no way I've ever slowed them down. I guess we panicked. I mean, I might have called 911. I'm not sure. I know it was pretty over pretty quickly, and whomever was being busted went pretty, you know, 
went without much resistance. But I like to think that the Arlington County Police Department, um, well, I like to thank them for giving me a very tre- treasured memory. Anyway, um, this isn't a podcast about my life when I was 22 years old and living in an apartment in Arlington, Virginia. This is a podcast about popular culture. Uh, and um, as much as I'm sure you all uh, are interested in my being treated to a performance of the touring company of Cops, um, I think you really want me to produce some content that you can actually relate to. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm trying to supply some context here is that I've been through, you know, that we all have gone through with the odd stories about coming out of college and, and putting up with being in your early 20s, which, like I said, is such an odd, screwy, fun, scary time in, in just about anybody's life. But, you know, I don't know. Doing the research for this episode, um, I, I couldn't help you know, you just can't doing anytime you do something like this, you can, you can't help but think of your own life, and and I couldn't help but think of of that time when I was 22, just out of college, and in my case, while wallowing in my own misery, working as a proofreader for the federal government, and now I'm 35 and I wallow in my own misery while working as a high school English teacher. So, what am I actually going to cover this time around? I know you're. You're about almost 10 minutes into this if you didn't turn it off already. Um, And you're wondering that. Well, I was thinking about PCSD. I was thinking about that and everything it's about. And I couldn't help but think about the one place. um, It's really illustrated so well, and uh, that is the movies. And while there are plenty that I could talk about, and, and I definitely want to mention a few, one that I think is powerful enough to warrant uh, its own episode, at least at this point, is St. Elmo's Fire. But first, I have to lay some groundwork because <clears throat> the idea of PCSD movie of a PCSD movie um, it goes back further than 1985, which is when when St. Elmo's Fire was made and came out. Um, and and there are there are a lot better films than this cheesy kind of brat pack flick uh, to really is- illustrate you know that time in somebody's life. In fact, I think that if you really want to do a study on, on PCSD, you have to start with The Graduate. That's a film I suppose I could have covered as part of maybe a trio of films instead of just this one, you know, because I also think of, of, of other movies and um, what have you. But uh, to be honest, it's such a well-known, seminal film that... I don't really know if what I had to say about it would really add anything. Um, plus, the first time I ever watched The Graduate and got all of the jokes was for a film class I was taking in college, whereas this movie I rented from the video store and watched over and over and over and over and over again and still watch over and over again um, and speaks to me on some level, even if I'm a full decade older than the characters and was probably about a full decade younger well not a full decade about half a decade younger than the characters when I first saw it but The Graduate 
uh, needs to be mentioned because it definitely gets credit for being the first film that really encapsulates someone taking the first big step into the world and just how scurvy it is. The final shot of that film and how it just lingers for a few seconds too long is one of my favorite shots ever in film because it says so much, you know? And Mike Nichols used to Simon and Garfunkel made it into one of those films that sort of sets the tone for, for movie soundtracks. So let's give The Graduate credit where credit is firmly due because without Ben Braddock and Elaine Robinson, I don't think you have half of the characters that you have in the two, in the movie that I'm talking about today. And to be honest, Ben and Elaine, they're my parents. I mean, not literally, obviously. But to my knowledge... Uh, not in the sense that my dad interrupted my, and, and, and to my knowledge, not in the sense that my dad interrupted my mom's wedding to someone else and she ran off with him down the city bus. But in the sense that when The Graduate came out in 67, uh, both of them were in their early 20s. Um, by the time I hit my, hit my early 20s, the postscript to The Graduate, The Big Chill, had come and gone. Uh, so as much as I can appreciate the film, as much as I love its music, as much as I can on some level identify with the characters I can't exactly point out to that movie and say yeah that's what I was going through I kind of say that about Reality Bites and Singles both of which came out when I was in high school and are two of my favorite movies of the 90s Singles is especially underrated and both are films that I think get better with age especially when I think um, when I watched this and I actually was the ages of those characters. Uh, if I felt like doing a huge comprehensive look at um, PCSD movies, I'd do feature hours on each of them. And I, and I originally actually considered doing that for this episode. But as I was taking notes, um, I thought, you know, I like these movies all so much that they probably should get their own episodes or at least maybe like a singles versus reality bites throwdown episode or like where two movies enter and one gets out alive or I don't know either way if we can kill Ethan Hawke that'd be great but but really um, I, I wouldn't give be able to give them enough uh, enough justice over the course of the hour or so that I that I plan to talk about St. Elmo's Fire and I've got, what, four movies that I've mentioned, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. I could add movies that have nothing to do with being post-college, just the movies that have something to do with just being at work and being miserable at work to this list. Office space, clerks, waiting. Um, These are movies that you just watch at whatever point you enter the workforce because you would just flat out be able to commiserate with all of them. Um, I first saw Office Space when it came out on video, uh, probably like right after um, I graduated college. And then about six months later, my friends were talking about the movie and I went and rented it again. And since I've been working uh, by then, I was really, really laughing my ass off. In fact, I remember when my wife, um, when we were still dating, uh, she left one of her first jobs. It was a horrible, she had this horrible, horrible boss. and, And I said, you know, we really you should watch this movie. So we went to Hollywood Video and we rented it. And she was, 
I think we had to watch it twice because the first time she was just so viscerally angry at the movie at, at Lumberg because she's just like, I just escaped this. And then eventually, you know, watching it again and just laughing your ass off through the whole thing. Um, and, and, and my friends and I all kept that movie in heavy rotation for, for quite a while. So I'm not without material. Um, and I, I'm sure that at some point... Uh, I'll do more of these, but for now, I think it's great. Uh, it's a good time for a movie that I have seen more than once, more than twice, more than any time I can count, because um, teen movies were my regular fare for, for a good Friday night uh, when I was in high school, especially the first couple of years of high school. And uh, the two people who I knew from high school who might, who might be listening to this podcast just went, oh, you did nothing but sit at home and watch Brat Pack movies on Friday nights in high school. Of course you did nothing but sit at home and watch Brat Pack movies on Friday nights in high school. But, nevertheless, we'll take a look at St. Elmo's Fire after this break. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? I can't remember who met who first, or who fell in love with who first. All I can remember is the seven of us always together. Well, it's not just infatuation, Kevin. She's not just a girl. She's the only evidence of God that I can find on this entire planet. Where did you meet Wendy again? Prison. <laughs> Hi, Felicia. How you doing? Me? Oh, you know, it ain't easy being me. You know all those nights we stayed up talking? How come you never made a pass at me? I'm going to get you a red, lacy baby doll like. Alec, I'm very happy in your old pajamas. Oh, I'm happy when you're out of my old pajamas. <laughs> Alec is becoming a Republican and he wants to get married. Oh my God. Do you ever feel like you're not accomplishing anything at all? I think I'm in touch with that emotion. The heat this summer is at St. Elmo's Fire. You're not going to believe how out of hand it's going to be. So Cinema's Fire was directed by Joel Schumacher. Yes, Joel Schumacher. Holy rusted metal, Batman! Huh? The ground, it's all metal, it's full of holes, you know? Holy! Oh. Batman and Robin, Joel Schumacher. 
Chicks dig the car. This is why Superman works alone. Directed. This. A movie that's actually worth watching. Joel. Schumacher. This. Released on, on June 28th, 1985, Cinema's Fire um, opened in fourth place at the box office behind Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider and two 80s classics, uh, Cocoon and Rambo First Blood Part Two. Uh, it was made on a budget of $10 million. It grossed $37.8 million. It was the 23rd highest grossing movie of the year, finishing with about $8 million less than The Breakfast Club, a movie that starred three of St. Elmo's cast members. And uh, it made about $4 million more than Teen Wolf, the Michael J. Fox movie. Uh, believe it or not, it actually made more money than Commando. And in researching this, I at least wanted to point out that making $40.6 million on the year was a was a re-release of E.T., uh, which I forgot that in the 80s there were re-releases of popular movies like that. I know that for years I used to go see the Disney cartoons in re-release uh, before they finally just started putting everything out on home video, but I remember Star Wars, the Star Wars movies um, getting re-releases because I saw Jedi in the theater um, on a re-release as well as when I saw it in the on in the theater back in 83 and I did see E.T. in a re-release um, but I'd also seen it in, in 82. It was, in fact, E.T. is the first movie I ever saw when I was five years old. Um, but I, I do remember going to the Sable Theater uh, for the re-release in, in 85 uh, with my parents. And I would have been seven by then. Seven or eight. Depending on um, when I actually went and saw the movie. Anyway. Uh, watching Cinema's Fire was uh, it was an inevitability considering the number of times I'd watched you know, The Breakfast Club. And uh, I'd have to say that in addition to The Breakfast Club and a couple of other movies, this is what I think that most people would consider the quintessential Brat Pack movie. I mean, run down the cast. Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Ali Sheedy, Andrew McCarthy, Judd Nelson, Demi Moore, Mayor Winningham, um, shoehorn Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall in there, you have the Brat Pack in full effect. Um, in fact, I want to say that it's around the time that they were all promoting this movie that the infamous article that coined the term Brat Pack was written. So um, this is kind of the height of the of, of the mania concerning these actors. Uh, it's a movie that really does epitomize the 80s, and despite my claim that it's a good Joel Schumacher film, it's cheesy. But it's good cheese. It's good cheese enough for me to have reviewed this actually before. Um, it, it was one of the ones I reviewed for Bad Movie Night uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, which is what I did with Can't Buy Me Love, which I did a couple episodes ago. Uh, and just so like I do with a camp on me love, um, I want to share the review that I wrote. Um, this case, I gave it five beans. Uh, a Mr. Bean is the was the uh, rating system for for the bad movie night. Ten beans meant it was a horrible, horrible movie, and one bean meant it was, or zero beans meant it was actually watchable, even though it wasn't wasn't that good of a movie. Uh, I gave this five. Kind of towed the line between 
God, what the hell am I watching? And eh, this isn't too bad. Here's the review. Ever rubbernecked? You know, driven by a car accident and slowed down to see if you could get a really good look at the carnage, whether it be passengers crying into each other's arms or a car suspended on a median wall. And you know you should look away because not only is it rude to stare at other people's misery, but you're also holding up traffic. Well, such is St. Elmo's Fire. I could start off by clarifying that I don't hate this movie one bit. In fact, I love this movie because it is a seven-car pileup that ties up traffic on the key bridge at rush hour. With that said, I'll get back to the meat and potatoes here. St. Elmo's Fire is considered the ultimate Brad Pack movie, probably because it stars most of that group and actors and actresses of actors and actresses, the only ones absent being Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall. The plot centers on seven Georgetown graduates trying to cope with life after college as they burn out in the real world circa 1985. Each of them has his or her share of problems. Billy, Rob Lowe, is a husband and father but can't hold a steady job and parties like he's still in college. Jules, Demi Moore, is a coked-up party girl nearing her credit limit. Kirby, Emilio Estevez, is a law student who becomes obsessed with Dr. Dale Beaverman, Andy McDowell. Kevin, Andrew McCarthy, is also lovelorn, but he's brooding. He's a brooding writer obsessed with Leslie, Ali Sheedy, who is living with his best friend, Alec Judd Nelson. Alec is the group's outspoken leader, and he's been screwing around on Leslie. So that's... Oh, wait, that's only six. Who am I forgetting? Oh, yeah, Wendy, Mayor Winningham. She's in love with Billy, and she's a virgin. You can kind of see where that one's going. That's pretty much the... Pr- only purpose Wendy serves anyway, except for being a foil to all of her hedonistic friends. This movie is about bottoming out, or as Jules puts it, being so tired at 22. And it tries to teach a lesson in karma or something. Alex screwing around gets back to Leslie, and she sleeps with Kevin. Jules loses everything, her job, her possessions, and locks herself in her apartment while outside. Alec tries to drop Kevin off the fire escape. Who gets out her out of the jam? Billy, of course, because he's already bottomed out and was losing his job again, his wife and his kid. Kirby and Leslie help, but with them, it's guilt by association. If the words written and directed by Joel Schumacher cause you to break out in hives, I wouldn't recommend this movie just yet. See The Lost Boys or DC Cab. But if you want to see 1985 at its cheesiest, please watch this movie. It's overacted, overwritten, overdirected, and even overscored. David Foster's Muzak has become a standard for many a dentist's office. But that's just the beauty of it. Judd Nelson is at his nostril flaring best. Ali Sheedy pouts like nobody else. Demi Moore, well, I'll set a precedent and not say anything snarky about Demi Moore. And Andrew McCarthy uses film, the film to, protect his, to perfect his trademark deer-in-the-headlight stare. Oh, and then there's Rob Lowe, who, yes, has redeemed himself on the West Wing, but he's just so darn pretty in this movie. It's great to watch this one in the context of history. Much like Brandon Lee's death added to the mystery of the crow, knowing what, that most of the Brat Packers would v- gradually fade into obscurity after this flick, with the exceptions of probably Moore and Estevez, adds to the carnage. Just like that seven-car pileup on the bridge... You hear someone died and didn't think, wow, I was actually a witness. It's hard to look away from St. Elmo's Fire, mostly because the cinematography is pretty gorgeous, but also because in so very few movies are the excesses of a young generation of actors who represent an entire decade of excess laid out before you, and sincerely no less.
But after everything's towed away and you move on, just remember the movie's best line, courtesy of Kirby. Fluff and fold, buddy. As soon as I make it really big, I'm going fluff and fold. Fluff and fold. Perfect metaphor. Alright. So what do I think of this movie now? Well, I should give you the plot in a little more detail than past me did. Uh, basically what we have here is the story of seven college friends, all of whom are now living and working in Washington, D.C. They're all recent graduates of Georgetown, although in a bit of trivia, Georgetown read the script and didn't approve the producers using the university, so scenes of the college were shot at the University of Maryland College Park campus. Uh, furthermore, there are references to a fraternity house, and to my knowledge, Georgetown's a Jesuit school, so there is no Greek system. Uh, ha being a graduate of a Jesuit school myself, uh, I know from personal experience. Anyway, suspension of disbelief and all that shit. These recent Georgetown grads are kind of a magnificent seven, of course, or what my father would call a crew. That was like a term he always had. Like, he'd look at a photo of my cousin and her friends from high school and say, ah, the whole crew is there. Fortunately, I was never part of a crew, because you have to be cool to become a part of a crew, and cool is not spending Friday night in your basement watching San Almas Fire while the rest of your people in your senior class are going out getting drunk and having sex. But yeah, they're the crew, and the crew isn't doing so well, especially since David Foster's lilting love theme from San Almas Fire and a shot of them in their caps and gowns walking toward the camera that looks kind of like it's projected, you know, like it's some sort of distant memory is interrupted by uh, five out of the seven bursting through an emergency room entrance. Two of them have gotten to a minor car accident, and we're supposed to get the feeling that this is the latest in a series of screw-ups for Rob Lowe's Billy Hicks, the clear bad boy of the group, who knocks someone up at some point and is now married to her, and he has a daughter with her, but he barely, he rarely behaves like he does. Wendy is Mayor Winningham's character. She's the group's resident virgin, and, well, she was the other person in the accident. She's shaken up, but she's okay. From here, they head to the only place that 22-year-olds can go when they've just checked their friends out of the emergency room. The bar. Um, and the bar is where they kind of get the title for the book, because the bar is called, uh, the movie, because the bar is called St. Elmo's. Uh, and it is based loosely on a bar in Georgetown called The Tombs. Um, a bar that I've actually been to. Uh, first went to on a 12th grade government intern, government student field trip to see the Supreme Court. We ate dinner there the night before we went to the Supreme Court, like five or six of us, with my government teacher, a couple of uh, uh, chaperones and what have you. It was, it was kind of fun. Anyway, um, so they go to the bar, and, and this is where the various characters' stories kind of diverge from the, from the opening, cause, and then they'll reconverge at the end of the movie, because um, it's an ensemble piece, but, you know, you have kind of, everybody has their own little spotlight throughout, and, and I think instead of doing this sort of this happens, and this happens, going character by character is probably the best way to do it. That way everything's kind of accounted for. So we'll start with Billy and Wendy, because that's who the center of the attention at the beginning of the film. Uh, Billy, like I said, is the wild guy, the bad boy, and it's caught up with him, or at least it should have, considering he has a wife and child. But it doesn't seem to matter. He's out drinking every night. He's playing at saxophone at the bar. Badly, I might add. And he's losing job after job after job. 
Wendy, on the other hand, uh, she's the boring one. She's still the virgin. She lives with her rather wealthy parents. Her dad's uh, the CEO of a greeting card store company. And, and basically, you marry into the family. You get They're called card aterias. Um, and uh, you get a franchise. So it, it's very, you know... You know, like, in fact, there's a scene where Billy goes to dinner at Wendy's house, and he's like, you know, some of the, the brother-in-laws, like, you know, I, when I married her, I, I got I got a couple of franchises. Like, you know, you, you there, there's a lot of money there. And she's the, the rebel of the family because she actually works at the Department of Social Services. It's a low-paying job. It's much to her father's chagrin. He, in fact... He wants her to marry a nice guy, enjoy the family business. She wants to be more independent. Um, now, the female match for Billy, at least as far as characters are concerned, is Jules, uh, played by Demi Moore, who's a complete coke fiend. Um, and in a fit of irony uh, from what I read on the internet, apparently she had to go to rehab to play this part because she was so messed up on cocaine back in the mid-1980s that she couldn't work. And they sent her to rehab, rehab so she could go and play a coke fiend on screen. But she is. she's Jules is a coke fiend. She has some job in international banking, but she's so far advanced in her salary, and she's screwed her credit so badly that she's about to have everything yanked out from under her. That is, if she can sober up and realize it. She has a stepmother. There's this running gag with her, and she has this stepmother she refers to as her wicked stepmonster. And the stepmonster is dying in the hospital. And she's trying to, like, plan the funeral the entire movie, and she, every time she's with her friends, she brings up ways to, like, cheaply plan the funeral. Um, but, again... It, it's almost like a, a smokescreen for the fact that she's really, really fucking up here. Now, Alec. Um, Alec's played by Judd Nelson. He's their leader, in a sense, and uh, acts most of the movie using his nostrils. No, seriously. I mean, you don't notice it as much in The Breakfast Club, but watch Judd Nelson in Sandless Fire, you could drive a train further through those things. Anyway, Alex the Politico, the guy who takes everything a little too seriously, he's now living with Ali Sheedy's Leslie. They're the class couple types, the two who everyone thinks is going to get married. Um, and he's been pressuring her into getting married, mainly because he thinks getting married is going to stop him from sleeping around on her. I don't think that's how it works, but okay. He's the Democratic staffer, by the way, who's going to start working for a Republican senator. Um, in other words, he's every other douchewad in D.C. who makes living and working in there are so much fun. But, you know, fighting for Leslie's affection is Alex's best friend, Kevin, played by Andrew McCarthy. He's an affected writer who seems to do very little except mope around. He writes notes for some magnum opus article about the meaning of life, and he pines for his best friend's girl all the time. I mean, he keeps having, he also keeps having these weird conversations with the streetwalker outside of his building. 
they don't seem to have any real relationship or anything, but it's a way to show us how, I don't know, lost he is. Show the underside of Washington, D.C. I'm not sure. And then there's Kirby, played by Emilio Estevez, who's got this random C-plot. It's one of the most random C-plots in movies. Um, all the six characters kind of intertwine. Wendy's a little bit off to the side, but her thing with Billy, she kind of has a thing for Billy, and, and, and that kind of gets um, her kind of as part of the group. But you could take Kirby's subplot from the movie, and you would still have the movie. Um, basically what happens is the night of Wendy and Billy's accident, Kirby spots Annie McDowell. She's Dale Bieberman who um, he went out with one time a few years earlier. And he basically spends the entire movie obsessed with her. No really, like, crashing parties where she is, driving up, you know, interrupting on her phone, driving her roommate crazy, and even going as far as to drive to her ski cabin and interrupt her coitus with her fiancé, although... That's the point where he realized that he's not going to win her, and he has to stay the night, though, because the car gets stuck. And um, the next day, after digging it out, the fiancé, who's this guy who kind of looks like Aiden Quinn, but is not Aiden Quinn, uh, the fiancé suggests posing for a picture, and while he goes in the camera to get cabin to get the camera, Kirby plants one on Dale, and he kind of wins at the end. It's... <sighs> I don't know, but really, when you boil down the plot, and you boil down this sort of, like, them going through everyday life, and them going through being 22, and job here, and this there, relationship there, and party here, and party there, um, there's really two events in the movie that you need to know about. First, after Alec more or less tries to force Leslie to say yes to a proposal by announcing to an entire party that she's going to marry him when she hasn't said yes at all, she calls him out on his extracurricular love life. He thinks Kevin has ratted him out and decks Kevin, even though Leslie just kind of figured the whole thing out on her own because she's not an idiot. She goes home uh, with Kevin and they get wasted together. And he confesses that, well, he's always been in love with her. And, well, they do it. The next morning, Alex shows up, and he's still wasted off and from the night before. But he finds Leslie there. And this eventually leads to the most epic breakup scene in cinematic history, which, if you had listened to a recent episode of Taking Flight, my other podcast, which you can find over at the Batman Universe... Um, you heard this introduce the episode. I specifically took off work today because I thought you weren't going to be here. I'm sick. What's wrong? Just sickness. can't have the pretender's first album that's mine i bought it you did not 
You can have all the Billy Joel's. Except the stranger. I'm taking Thriller and Mahler's Nine. Kevin is so fond of Mahler. I moved in with Jules. Oh, how nice. Roomies again. No Springsteen is leaving this house. You can have all the Carly Simon. You got me this for Valentine's Day. Remember when there were still Valentines around here? You ran out on this relationship. You take the consequences. I didn't run out on anything. You ran out. You fucked Kevin. You fucked many. Nameless, faceless many. I feel much better now. Thanks. You're not taking the police. So anyway, I didn't just fuck Kevin. I was confused and angry and I care about him very deeply. Get your clothes, give me the keys, and get out. Now! I can't believe this is happening to us. Wasted love! God, I just wish I could get it back. After this, when the world of the CNM07 is reeling from the aftershocks of the breakup, Jules loses everything. Her job, her car, her furniture, her mind. And she locks herself in her apartment with the windows open so she'll, I don't know, freeze to death or something. So she's sitting on the floor of the fetal position, rocking back and forth. And the gang convenes the fire escape because they can't get into the apartment. But they can't get into the apartment. They can't get in through the door and they can't get into the apartment because there's bars in the windows. This gives Alex the opportunity to try to drop Kevin off of the balcony. We're at the Amico station on Michigan. I'll see if he's got something. He's just around the corner. Billy's working in a gas station. He needed the money. Jules! Little shit! Eventually, Billy shows up, um, having recently gotten a job at a gas station, uh, with an acetylene torch, and um, the guys try to break in by melting the bars off the window, and he goes into the apartment building, and Jules eventually lets him in, and then 
he goes to see Jules and he gives like the speech of the movie you know because of the titles in the speech so this is the speech of the movie you know what I've been doing every day since I got fired no what I've been going down to the hospital and sitting with my step monster we've had the best talks we've ever had She's in a coma, which really pisses me off. Because all that time, I just waited for one word from that woman about why my father hates me so much. fire. Electric flashes of light that appear in dark skies out of nowhere. Huh? Sailors would guide entire journeys by it, but the joke was on them there was no fire. There wasn't even a St. Elmo. They made it up. They made it up because they thought they needed it to keep them going and things got tough. Just like you're making up all of this. We're all going through this. Hey, it's our time on the edge. I'm just so tired, Billy. I never thought I'd be so tired at 22. I just don't even know who to be anymore. Join the club. In the end, Billy decides to give up the marriage and the kid because his wife has found a guy who is actually going to take better care of her. And he leaves for New York. Uh, not before nailing Wendy in her new apartment, though. Uh, another bit of trivia. Mayor Winningham was apparently pregnant <laughs> when she was playing a virgin. Um, anyway, Jules gets her act together a little bit. Leslie declares that she's now single. She doesn't want to date either Alec or Kevin, and things kind of go back to normal. So, it's not The Graduate. And it's too cheesy to be taken seriously. Um, since it's an incredibly just 80s movie. I mean, to the point where it's almost like an artifact. You know, like years from now, an alien culture will land on Earth and after devastating Hackensack, New Jersey, they'll start studying our society and they'll watch St. Elmo's Fire and see that 1985, you know, existed at one point. And yet, this is PCSD. This is your friends not being able to get over the fact that they're not in college anymore. They can't spend their weeknights at the same haunts, and they can't act like they have they had been. Some get over it quicker than others. Billy and Jules completely crash and burn, and I have to say I'm sure that at least one of them will get his or her shit together, but the other one will probably continue to be a fuck-up. 
I can picture Billy calling Kirby or Alec when they're in their 30s or 40s and asking for money for the umpteenth time, and the other guy's wondering aloud why he constantly seems to be in trouble. But from here, I can see each of them moving on with their lives and feeling a little more mature after all of the crap that's happened here. I can't imagine that Alec and Leslie make another go at it. Maybe Kevin and Leslie do, or something like that. Maybe Kevin realizes he's gotten Leslie out of his system and he finds someone else. It's kind of fun to speculate about where they go from here, because I can imagine what happens is they just start to drift apart, and while they made friends, it's just not as close as they had been. Because this is what happens in your 20s. You do what you can to hold on to the friends you've had for years, and in a lot of cases, you do. I mean, I'm still friends with people that I went to high school with and went to college with and and, and who I was friends with in, in my early 20s. But there's a point where you start to see that the habits that you have when you were in college are probably not the best habits to have as an adult. Because you have rent and bills and waking up at 10.58 for an 11 o'clock class isn't going to help you make it in the world. In fact, I'd say that each of the characters seems to represent a characteristic of PCSD or, or archetypical PCSD characters. Alex the yuppie. Although... This is D.C., we're not in New York. He's like a politico-yuppie, and he's like the worst kind. He switches party affiliation just because he wants more money. Leslie, I'm not sure what she does for a living in this movie, to be honest with you. She's career-conscious, but I don't know. She's never in without, like, in her own story. She's in the context of everybody else's. So I, I can't figure out what, at least what she does. Um, but maybe that's her thing? She's always been the girl with the boyfriend? Or she's struggling between an MRS degree and an actual career, whatever it may be? She makes enough money to shop at, like, Cartier. Billy and Jules are both those hard-partying fuck-ups, although on different levels. Jules is the one who's constantly drunk or high at the office, happy hours and Christmas parties, the one you can't believe still has a job. Um, well, except the fact that she has a job leading the charge to the bar. Furthermore, as we see, she's a cautionary credit tale. Remember how your parents told you to use car credit cards wisely? Well, Jules is what happens when you don't. Billy, he's the guy who truly tries to live as if he still is in college. The one you really start to see is kind of pathetic after a while. Especially since you can't remember how he, how he managed to graduate, considering you can't seem to hold down a job. Kirby's in graduate school and is on a life deferral plan. Kevin's your starving artist friend who seems to have something to say about his soul at every turn, and if he weren't constantly pining for Leslie, he'd wind up being insanely depressed and eventually completely miserable to be around, which is, well, pretty much what I was like at 22. Yeah, I think I had this idea that I was going to graduate college and become like big, important writer at some point, without actually having to work for it or something. Don't ask why. I had a hard time adjusting to being an adult, and well, you could say that I still am, but at least I have a blog now because now I have an outlet for all of my stupid crap. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Who do I have left? Alec, Leslie, Kevin, Kirby, Jules, Bill. Oh, Wendy. Wendy's the conscious one, the friend of yours who is out to do some good in the world. She's also that person who is dealing with what is the most annoying question you can get post-college. 
when are you going to get a real job? She's also dealing with the wonderfully forward thinking, when are you going to get a man to take care of you? Which is kind of why I'm glad that, like, she gets her own place and nails Rob Lowe. I mean, go, go Wendy. But again, as overdone as this movie may be at times, as cheesy as it can get, it's watchable. And to be honest, it's pretty rewatchable. On some level, its rewatchability, yes, is one of the car accident is one of car accident voyeurism. But like I said, it's got great value as a time capsule too. I mean, look at everything in this film; it's just so 80s. It holds up after all these years because it is so much of its time. The fashion, although in all honesty, I don't know why Ali She is rocking the school mom look. The set design, the soundtrack. The soundtrack itself is worth mentioning. Because you have two tracks from here that made the top 40. The most known, of course, is what opened the show, which is Man in Motion and Santa Must Fire by John Parr. It was written by David Foster and performed by John Parr. Sorry. The inspiration of the song, however, is not by, by the way, a cast of yuppies living in 1985, Georgetown. It's Canadian athlete Rick Hansen, who's a Paralympian, who at the time was traveling around Canada to raise awareness for spinal cord injuries. But they put this song on the soundtrack. It went number one in the United States, and it's Parr's best-known song. In doing some quick research, I saw that he had some other songs, but I'm going to be the first one to say that I have no idea what his back catalog is like, aside from Man in Motion. The other track that was popular hit number 15 on the Hot 100 was David Foster's instrument, Love's Theme from Scene That Was Fire. I can see why. It's it's a nice, lilting violin and piano piece, and if you're cool and hip and into the latest music, in other words, not me, you're not supposed to like it, but you kind of find yourself just liking for some reason. It's kind of like that's David Foster, though. I mean, I don't know. It, 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 it's He's one of those people who, like, is insanely successful in one way or another, and you don't realize how, and you hear the music, and you're like, I, I kind of get it, yeah. It's still, I don't, I don't get John Tash, though, so, I mean. Anyway, it goes without saying that um, you can track this down. Uh... The, the movie is available via Netflix, Amazon. Um, it's rerun on cable, like, a lot. Um, you, will come, you will come across it at, at least a few points, a, a few times at least at some point in the year. And it'll suck you in, uh, especially if you come in on a decent scene. The soundtrack's available on iTunes. The only thing that sucks about it is that you can't just download like the one song it's an album only thing and I hate that because um, I wanted to grab the David Fo- Foster song uh, or, or another iteration of the David Foster's the score for this and um, I couldn't and I wasn't going to pay the nine ninety nine or whatever for the whole stupid album but you know what I'm sure that you can find it somewhere else, maybe on Amazon or something. I haven't, I haven't checked. Um, but that's it for Cinema's Fire, and that's it for our, my first look at anything involving post-collegiate stress disorder. Perhaps I'll come back another time with this, especially with uh, 
like I said, Singles and Reality Bites are two movies from the 90s that I think really do this well. Next time, I have a special celebration planned. Uh, it is the 20th anniversary of one of the most influential Saturday morning television shows of our time. Well, it's not the 20th anniversary of the premiere of it, but it's the 20th anniversary of a very significant final episode of that particular television show. Intrigued? Oh, I know you are. But you're going to have to come back at the end of May. So until then, thank you very much for listening. I'm Tom Panneries, and I'll see you next month. reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. The future, the